Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. you're all doing great. Um, If you have a Bible with you, if you would, turn to the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament toward the back, the book of Daniel, and turn to chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. We're going to uh, begin a series we're going to do for about three weeks, which we're going to call God's Unshakable Kingdom. And it's going to kind of complement what we've been talking about with the prophets. Daniel is um, you know, right next to those books and has some of the same dynamics. And so we're, we're looking forward to this. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible, by the way. It's just a really cool book. Again, descriptions of God that are in here are, are powerful and compelling. The stories are powerful and compelling and I think very practical to us. So this is going to be a, a really, really good journey. So let me give you a little background on the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is 12 chapters long. It happened... Uh, to a, it was about a character in Israel's history named, obviously, Daniel. And uh, he was part of a, a time period called the exile. And if you'll remember, we had been talking about the, the history of Israel and their monarchy and their kingdom and how they split and how they were, you know, one, one and a half was conquered in 722 Israel, the other half was conquered in 586 Babylon. Well, Daniel was part of Judah, that second Uh, nation that was conquered in 586. And when Nebuchadnezzar sent the Babylonian army in, they went, they conquered, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the land, they tore down all the buildings, they completely destroyed their temple. And one thing they would do whenever these old ancient Near Eastern conquerors conquered, they would go after the brightest and the best. And they would bring them back to their land and use them and incorporate them into their culture. So Daniel would have been a very prominent kid, probably a rich kid. He was a young boy, a teenager. We, when we read the story of Daniel, we also read that he had three friends, probably teenagers. They, their, their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they went with him. And so uh, this is their story. And Daniel began as a young teenager. He stayed in Babylon for 40 years. He rose to be a person of great prominence in that kingdom. And then, and, and as we read the book of Daniel, the way it's structured, the first six chapters tell stories of Daniel and his friends, their experiences in Babylon. And it traces it over a lot of years with, with different kings. And it just shows his evolution and his growth into a civic leader in that culture and in that community. And then the last six chapters of the book of Daniel are about Daniel's visions. He starts having visions and these prophecies of, the, the, of what's going to happen and what's going to unfold in Israel's future. And it's really kind of a remarkable part of the Bible to read as we're going to get into it. You're going to see uh, Daniel is going to talk a lot about what the future is going to unfold after Babylon. He talks about the different other major kingdoms that are going to come after Babylon, and he actually nails it. It's really amazing to read the prophecy, how he nails it, and then he goes through those things. He talks about a situation that is going to happen to the Jewish people in 175 B.C., when one of the Greek uh, princes named Antiochus IV, he changed his name to Antiochus 
Epiphanies, the word epiphany means the manifestation or the appearing of God. That's what he, what he thought he was. And his attack and his assault and his vicious persecution and, of the Jewish people and how the Jewish people you know, overcame him and fought against him through the leadership of a guy named uh, Maccabees. And we celebrate Hanukkah from that. We'll get into that story a little bit more maybe next week. But it's going to talk about that. And then it's going to talk about when the Messiah is going to come. And remarkably, Daniel predicts that the Messiah is going to come a little bit over 400 years from the time of the exile. Well, guess what? Jesus appeared around that time. He also predicts some other things. He predicts that the, the kingdom uh, that's going to be in power then will attack and will destroy Jerusalem and destroy it again. He predicts that before that happens, the Messiah, this figure, will have in his last week, he will actually be cut off and killed in the middle of that week. And he also predicts that this figure, this Messiah, Will, will begin an empire, and it will grow and grow and fill the whole earth. And it's just going to be kind of remarkable to look at this. And then there's also some theologians see sort of allusions to Christ's second coming in the book of Daniel. So it's kind of a cool, cool thing, but it is a, uh, it's just kind of remarkable to read the book of Daniel and, because what you see in it and the point that, that the book of Daniel for 12 chapters wants to drive through in many different ways, whether it's through this guy's life experiences or whether it's through his prophecies, is that our God is sovereign. And as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, you serve and you are connected to a sovereign God. He literally plans out and decides empires. He decides which empires next. He, he, he decides characteristics of it. And then he, when he's done, he can bring in another one. He literally is a being that possesses that type of power and that type of ascendancy and that type of control over history. We also see that he is sovereign in the way he brought about Messiah into the earth. And we'll also see that he demonstrates his sovereignty through his people. He, he, he wants to show the world the, the, his power in his presence through his people. And what we understand about a sovereign God are three things. These are three qualities that make God sovereign. Number one, he's omnipotent. He is a being of ultimate power. Number two, he's omniscient. He's a being who knows everything. Literally, God cannot learn. Now, sometimes my wife says, I can't learn. That's a different type of not being able to learn. Like, he, he literally cannot discover something. Think about what it would be like that. What, what's it like for you and I to be able to get advice from a being like that? He's omnipotent, he's omni and he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. God is powerful, he's ultimate, he's present. And this is who we're connected to. And what the book of Daniel wants to do, it wants to show us, it wants to challenge us, it wants to intrigue us into thinking, how do we live as believers 
in light of a God like this? How do we live? And so it goes from these big things of who's the next world empire and when's the Messiah coming, but it also gets really down to your and my personal life. What kind of decisions do we make? What kind of moral choices? What kind of ethical choices? What type of character are we to develop in light of the fact that there is a God, our God is sovereign, he is in control of everything. So this is kind of the the point of Daniel. Now again, another valuable thing about Daniel is when it was written. It was written during this period called the exile. And if you read the Bible, this is the only record we have of how people that serve the Lord, how God's people, and how God acted during this about a 60-year period of time. From the time that Babylon conquered Jerusalem and tore it down and took these guys away until this guy named, as we've been we're reading about, Cyrus released. And we had this period of time, and we just don't know a lot about it except for this book. And to be in exile is, is, uh, simply meant you are God's people, but you're living in a godless land. How do you handle that? How do you handle it as a Christian living in a world that is not always friendly to Christianity? How do you do that? How do you live as a spiritual person in a world that's secular? How do you live as a Christ-centered person in a world that is Christ-rejecting? How do you do that? And Daniel uh, gives us great, great clues. Uh, when the... Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a book uh, called the book of Jeremiah. It's one of the larger prophet, prophetic books. And Jeremiah prophesied about this time. He prophesied about the fact that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by Babylon. And then he prophesied to the Jewish people, this is how you should live when you're in Babylon, when you're exiled. And you can read this in Jeremiah 29. He says, and there was different reactions to it. A lot of people that were Jewish people said, oh, we're going to revolt. We're going to protest. We're going to you know, cause, start an insurrection against these conquerors and against the powers that be. Then there were some that said, no, no, what we're going to do, we're going to withdraw. We're going to get away. We're going to get in our own little world. We're going to stay away. We're going to isolate, and we're going to stay away from the powers that be. And what Jeremiah told them to do is when you go to Babylon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. I want you to do well. I want you to start businesses. I want you to bless that community. Pray for that community to prosper. He said, I want you to get in there while you're in Babylon. Just live. Be cool. Make your life work. Represent me well. Live a thriving, vibrant life. Be the godly thriving in the midst of the godless. Be the Christ-centered thriving in the midst of the Christ rejecting. And that's what that's and, and when we get to the New Testament, the, the Apostle Peter in his letter, it's 1 Peter chapter 1 and in chapter 2, over and over again, he calls Christians exiles. He wants you and I to think of ourselves the same way God told these guys to think of themselves. That hey, we are the, the, the Christ loving, the Christ accepting, and the Christ rejecting world. We are the God's people in a godless world. But that doesn't mean that we protest. It's not about um, separating. It is about thriving. It's about living your life well 
for him in a world that rejects him. And this is what Daniel's doing and his friends are doing. And so, and, and again, it, it, the, the writer of Daniel, when he got it and he composed it, there were a lot of, we know there's a lot of other Daniel stories that were in, um, for instance, the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. They found other uh, Daniel stories in those writings. But he took these stories and he wanted to make a point about Daniel. See, there was some suspicion about Daniel because how does a good Jewish boy become a prominent leader in such a corrupt nation? How did he do that? <clears throat> and they want you to know how he did it. He didn't do it by compromising. He did it by not compromising. He didn't do it by rejecting his faith. He did it by putting his life on the line for his faith. And he encourages us to be the same type of people. So let's, let me kind of give you an overview of some of the stories of Daniel. And then we'll look at one particular. And then we'll land the plane. That sound good to everybody? Okay, chapter 1 of Daniel. We start out there. And what happens, Daniel and his three friends are in Babylon. Now, Daniel's original name, of course, his Jewish name was Daniel, but they changed his name to Belshazzar. His other three friends were called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is what a lot of times these ancient Near Eastern kings would do is when they conquered a land, they would change the name. They would change your name, and that's just a way of asserting dominance over you. You know, if... You know, there was some funny memes about the game last week, you know. But if we change the name of the Tennessee Volunteers to the Tennessee Rose Petals, and they went around calling themselves the Rose Petals, that would be like, oh, brother. That would be like you really punked them resoundingly. And this is what they would do. They would just change the name of the people. Like you came in there, they just change your name. They change the name of your king. And what's he going to do? Die? He just accepted his new name. And so these guys are going in there, and there's a, so you can kind of see what, what this is like. And they, they go in there, and what they're trying to do is indoctrinate these Jewish men, young men, into being Babylonians and accepting their culture and their ways. And so one of the things they push out is these dietary laws. They want them to just eat a diet. And the Bible says about Daniel and his friends that they purposed in their heart. They made up their mind. They said, you know, we're not going to go there. We're Jewish people. This is what we believe in. We're going to stay true to this detail of our faith. And they talked with the guys, and they worked it out with them. They didn't just, you know, come on strong. They were appropriate in the way they handled themselves. And the guy let them eat their kosher meal, and at the end of a certain amount of time, they were actually healthier and doing better, so they, they got to stay there. But just that one story kind of sets the tone, that as a young teenager, they were true to their faith. They were true to what they believed. Later on in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this vision, and he's troubled, and he can't figure things out, and he's kind of going crazy, and Daniel comes, and he has the interpretation of the vision for him. Then we get to chapter 3, and we'll look at this story in a little more detail. But it's a story of the fiery furnace. That this king erected this god to himself, and he wanted everybody to worship. And these guys put their life on the line by not worshiping, by not going along. In chapter 4, we have a story of the king, and it was later, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, but it was one of his descendants. He retained the name Nebuchadnezzar, but the guy's name was Nabonius. 
uh, and Nabonius actually, we have annals of him, and he writes about this experience where he kind of, he was, uh, Daniel kind of confronted him about a dream he had, and he lost his mind for seven years. And Nabonius, in his uh, uh, writings, his annals, he writes about how he met this Jewish exile who led him into repentance. And Lily, what we read about in chapter 4, this, this guy repented and before the Most High God. And then we get to chapter 5, which is the, the famous story of uh, later on, one of the, the Babylonian kings was having a big party and a big orgy, and he was using the, temp, the, the um, chalices and the, the parts of the, the Jewish temple to do this kind of stuff, and he was doing his idolatry and his perversion with these things, and out of nowhere appeared a huge hand. And that hand wrote something on the wall. Could you imagine that happening? You're just a king having your party and your fun. All of a sudden, a huge hand appears, and it writes something in a language you can't understand on a wall. He freaks out. He gets Daniel. He offers Daniel a bunch of money. Daniel says, I don't want your money, but I'm going to tell you what this says. He says, what does it say? It says, king, you are as good as dead. You're done. And the king was like, oh. So anyways, the king was over. And then in chapter 6, we had the course, famous story of Daniel in the lion's den and what he goes through there. So, and, and, and then we get into the prophecies. So that's the, the stories of Daniel. We see over and over again a man of character, a man of integrity, who is able to, to, to speak with authority and, and represent Christ well in his world. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3. And I want to look at this one passage here in verse 16. And this is a story of the, the blazing furnace, this, the three young men, Meshach, Abednego, and Shadrach. <clears throat> and what has happened here in this plain called Dura, the king has made this, this idol. It's a 90-foot tall, it's a very thin, tall idol covered in gold. And he wanted everybody to bow down and worship this idol. And it basically was authenticating <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar's belief that he was actually a God king. And everybody is down. There's music playing. They made it a very exotic, elaborate celebration. Music, all this stuff's going on. And people at this certain point were supposed to all bow down. And everybody bowed down but these three young men. They stood their ground. They stood strong. They stood tall. They didn't bow. They didn't go along with the crowd. They didn't do what everybody else was doing just because they were doing it. They, they held on to their convictions. They were living a life like their God actually was sovereign, that he was ultimate, that he really is all that matters. Here's what happens in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the king brings them forward. He's furious. He's raging. And he says, if you don't bow down, you're going to get thrown into this fire. And this is their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver, it, deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. 
That is strong. That is a powerful declaration of faith. That is the courage to believe your God is sovereign. And look at what happens. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up, and throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the blazing fire. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace of fire. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up <clears throat> and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. Verse 25, he said, Look, I see four men walking in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, perfects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was their hair, of, a hair on their head singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. And defiled the king's command and were not willing to, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into their pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. This story just kind of reiterates a pattern we see all throughout Daniel. And what happens is, is these guys take a stand against an evil king and against something that is wrong, and in the end, the evil king changes their mind. In chapter 2, here's what the king said to Daniel. Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. Here, here's what he says. No other God can save in this way. There is no other God like yours. In chapter 4, here's what the king says about their God. Then I praised the Most High, I honored, I glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people on earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, what you have done. Then in chapter 6, the king, after Daniel was in the lion's den, he spoke of God in verse 26. He said, he is the living God. He endures forever, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. And as what we see in the book of Daniel is when God's people, the godly in a godless world, treat their God as though he is sovereign, when they adhere to the fact but your God is ultimate, and he ought to be treated as such. What happens? People turn. People convert. People see it. 
it is something extremely powerful when people rise up and stand up with convictions, not in a self-centered, arrogant protest, and not in a fearful isolation, but we just live good, normal, healthy lives, and when duty calls, we are willing to take a stand. That is powerful. Very, very powerful. Courage moves people. All faith is, is the courage to believe what God says is true. This takes courage. That's what faith is. It's the courage to believe, the courage to take that step. It's the courage to hold strong. The book of Hebrews is talking about these guys, and it says, By faith they quench the power of fire. By faith they shut the mouths of lions. By faith by having the courage to believe what God says is true, is actually true, and standing on it, regardless of what happens. And this can get really right down into the practical things of our life. When it comes to relationships we have, do we have the courage to believe what God says is actually true? Are we willing to do that? Well, I might be alone for a while. Maybe you will for a while. But do you have the courage to believe what God says about himself and about that's true? When it comes to ethics in our life, or business ethics, do we have the courage to believe what God says is true? Do we treat people white? Do we do what it says? Do we have the courage to do that? Down in the very, very basic Elements of our life. It's about courage. It's about, it's about not compromising. You know, I, I, I tell you college students, I know what you're, you are literally like this, these guys. <clears throat> you are literally going from your nice, often good homes, and you are thrust into a world that is chaotic and crazy. Anybody ever notice that? You know, college campus, sometimes you just want to, you know, build a fence around it and sell tickets. It's an interesting place. You're going to hear crazy things in classrooms. You're going to see crazy things in dorms. And are you willing to stand for what you believe? When I was a teenager, I was 13 years old, and I became a Christian, really genuinely gave my life to Christ. My best friends that I ran with were, were just wild. Like, I look back on it and just go, you know, what, you know, what crazy, what sane parent would want their kids with the friend group I had? They were just nuts, wild. We were, you know, they were smoking pot. They were just vandalized. They were just crazy. Seven or eight of them. And I became a Christian. And I lived for Christ and loved them and was in their world. But I'll, but I'll serve the Lord. Today... Everyone, I kid you not, every one of those guys is a born-again Christian, and they're in a church. Every one of them. Remarkable stories, some of them, of how they came to Christ. Every single one of them. And I, I want to tell you something, young people. If you will live it, 
if you'll take a stand, if you will treat the being we believe is ultimate and actually live like it, live like it in big moments when you're really being tested, live like it, you will see lives affected and impacted. And yours won't be by the nonsense that's destroying everybody else. I want to give you just three qualities that I think we need to nurture and, and develop in our lives as believers. Is exiles. It's trying to be the godly. Is God's people in a godless world. Three qualities I think are very important. Number one, and we've talked about this, is courage. It just takes courage. It takes courage to believe. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, with Jacob, Reeser and I were working on something. Jacob's our drummer up here today, and, and we were talking about this movie called Evan Almighty. There's a real powerful quote in this movie where Morgan Freeman, a.k.a. God in the movie, he's always God, I don't know, in these things, what a voice. Anyways, Morgan Freeman is talking to this guy, Evan, as God, and he says, when you pray for courage, what do you think is going to happen? You think God's just going to stunningly just impart courage to you? You're just going to suddenly become courageous? He says, no. What happens is God gives you opportunities to be courageous. If you didn't feel weak and you didn't feel vulnerable, it wouldn't take courage. But it takes courage. Faith is about courage. It's about having courage. Second thing faith is about, it's about having convictions. It's about holding to beliefs. You know, I think it would have been very easy in that first chapter of Daniel when it's just about diet and it's about food. Just for them to say, oh, who cares? You know, eat a Twinkie, whatever they want. You eat what they tell you to eat. Eat, eat, a, eat. eat whatever. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They were able to really draw the line. And, and it's a really powerful word. They're... they're, they're Integrity, it said they purposed in their heart. They said, you know, I just don't believe in this, and I'm just not going to do it. There's just an integrity there. There's a, there's a commitment to an inner truth that they had. So they had courage, and they had integrity. And the last thing they had, which is really important, they had wisdom. They had wisdom. They didn't act like nuts and fools. They addressed authority appropriately. They were appropriate in the way they handled themselves. But they had wisdom. And see, as we look back now, as it, you and I, as we are the same, we are exiles in our world. We are hopefully Christ-centered people living in a Christ-rejecting world. We are God's people living in a world that is becoming more and more godless. It is up to us to mimic the faith of Daniel and his friends. To be people who have convictions that we hold to. People that have the courage to stand up if we ever need to stand up. And people that have the wisdom to know how to do that in an appropriate way. And this is what God calls you and I to be 
as his people. We are serving a sovereign God. We are serving a God that holds history in the palm of his hands. And we can follow him and we can love him and we can live for him with confidence and strength, no matter what the circumstances are. And this is what the book of Daniel, one of the things it's encouraging us to do is to do that. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful, these powerful stories. We thank you for this powerful life that Daniel and his three friends lived. That they were able to go into a world that was corrupt and godless and pagan and perverse. And they were to be like a light in darkness. They were able to shine by their example and their integrity. They shone through their courage where they had opportunities to demonstrate it. And by the wisdom and the way they handled themselves. Father, I pray you would help us as your people to represent you well. At work in our communities, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, in our social uh, clubs and, and, and encounters we have, whether it's on campus or in our community, help us to represent you well. Help us to stand like people who believe they represent a sovereign God. We thank you for that, Lord, and the privilege of doing that. In Jesus' name. Amen.